Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this class from our Equip Ministry will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. Did anyone have any questions or thoughts about uh, Haggai, if you were able to read through that this past week? Uh, in last week's handout, there was just a little, uh, some questions that would guide you through thinking through the message of Haggai. And no trouble if you weren't able to do that. Haggai uh, prophesies to the group of people we're studying, and so that's why it's helpful as it makes sense of the people group that he's addressing and the problems they're having. So Haggai is a very short little book. It's probably two pages in your Bible. Uh, four prophecies that he gives, and it's, it's really interesting stuff. So <laughs> if you have time to read him at some point, uh, go ahead and do that. It's worth it. It's a lot more understandable than Zechariah, who's the other prophet that prophesies of these people. Zechariah is so confusing. <laughs> he has lots of like little trite visions and they're not really explained what they mean. So you're kind of left like, wait, I hadn't figured out that one. We're on a new one now. And so it's fun, but it's also interesting. So the first eight chapters of Zechariah would be my recommended reading for next week if you want to, uh, just to kind of see that. It's on the last two pages of your handout with some questions that I threw together that could help with that. But so as we approach Ezra and Esther, uh, I'm going to kind of do this every week because it helps those who haven't been here uh, to kind of grasp where we're at in the context of Scripture. So we want to get a big picture of where we're at. So if you look at this uh, timeline here, this is a timeline of the Old Testament from creation to uh, the cross. So it doesn't go all the way into the New Testament acts and epistles and things like that. It stops at uh, Christ dying on the cross, Christ coming and dying on the cross. But as you can see, the history of the Old Testament builds uh, the nation of Israel. And we gain more information about them as time goes on, as God gives them more information. And so we go through it all, and we're often fairly familiar with the Genesis events, Judges, maybe some of Exodus. Uh, we're familiar with Saul and David and Solomon and the kings. But then we get to the further kings and the kingdoms divide and we lose track of who's who and which kingdom is good and bad and it gets complicated. So we're following the kingdom that was most often faithful, the southern kingdom, which is Judah. And what happened is because both the northern and the south, but the south specifically was addressed by Jeremiah, and God told the people through Jeremiah, if you don't repent and follow me, I'm going to send you into captivity. So they didn't repent. So he sent them into 70 years of captivity. He brought them out of captivity, and that's where we pick them up in Ezra chapter 1. Is, uh, they were taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, and then Babylon was conquered by Persia, and so in Ezra 1, Cyrus, the Persian king, uh, sends the people back. And it's this fun, you know, what has happened to the king 
he's sending us home with all of our gold and all the temple artifacts. You know, what is he thinking? And so that's where we pick him up. And so we've studied Ezra 1, Ezra 2. Uh, Ezra 2 lists the people who go back, and then we studied Ezra 3, which is when they return. And uh, while they're there, they, they get there first, and they build an altar and make sacrifices, and then they start worshiping the Lord again, and then they start work on the temple and lay the foundation and dedicate it to the Lord. And then that funny little thing happens at the end of 3, where all the young people are shouting for joy, and the people who had seen the temple before it was destroyed, like 50 years earlier, were uh, also happy at first, but then they start weeping. And then it just says that the noise was so loud that you could hear it from really far away. <laughs> so there's just like this crying and laughing noise is kind of where we left it last week. Um, so as we think about the context of Ezra, uh, this is kind of a blown up view of where we're at in Ezra. So Zerubbabel is the leader that leads him back to Jerusalem. And Joshua, sometimes referred to as Jeshua in Ezra, is the high priest. So as the people are coming back to Israel, they're seeking to set up the kingdom again. And so they need a Davidic king and a high priest and a temple and the Old Testament. They need the, the covenant, the Mosaic covenant to keep it. And so those are the things they're working on. Uh, so... This is kind of the outline of what we're studying. We're starting with Ezra 1 through 6, and then we're going to go to Esther, because that's chronologically next, and then we're going to come back to Ezra. So here are your first blanks. These are the ones we've had each week. So the Israelites desire a restoration of the theocratic kingdom. So that's the goal of this trip back to Jerusalem, is that God would restore the kingdom to them. Um, and so they need three things specifically. They need a Davidic king, they need the priesthood and the temple, they need, and they need to keep the Mosaic Covenant. So, I'll probably put those on every time. Yeah, Jim. You use the word Davidic, which would seem to be under the line of David. Yes. Um, is, that, is that, do they need David as king? Is that what you're saying when you say this? Yeah, so, that is what I'm saying. They need a descendant of David. So, back in... 2 Samuel 7, uh, God promises to David that his descendant will be king forever. Um, and so the people of Israel took that to heart, and, which they should have. And so the king of Israel after David must be a descendant of David. So if you read in Matthew 1, Zerubbabel is a descendant of David. He's in the genealogy leading to Christ. Um, and so that would have been a really exciting thing for these people to have a Davidic king, a high priest, to be going back to build the temple and then planning to keep the Mosaic Covenant. They would be the nation again. They'd be Israel again after being removed for 70 years and not practicing most of these things their time, during their time away. Um, and then the last blank there, the good hand of our God is upon us. And we'll see that again in part three of our study when we go back to the book of Ezra, when the person of Ezra actually shows up in chapter seven. He says this like seven times. We can, we can do this. We can move forward even though there's opposition. 
uh, we're fearful, all these things, we can do this because God's good hand is upon us and he just shows great faith throughout his time of leading uh, the remnant back. So that's kind of the, the zoomed out, zoomed in picture of Ezra. Does anyone have any questions about any of that? Yeah, Mark? Before the before they carried away, yeah. were all of the kings of both kingdoms divided? That's a good question. Uh, Mark's question is, were all the kings of the northern and southern kingdoms Davidic? And I don't know. They could have been, but I think Judah was... David was from the tribe of Judah, right? Right. So the other ones... Yeah, it probably wouldn't be hard to figure out because usually they list that. You know, they would, they would want to know that. That's good. Yeah. Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Remember, Jeroboam was a servant, and, and he started the kingship in the in Israel. Is that correct? Remember that? I and do, so but I, I don't remember the details. It might not be. And they were the sons of Solomon, who was the son of David. Right. Yeah. So I think there was a split in who was the rightful heir, and that's partially why the kingdom they didn't get along. <laughs> I have one other question. Yeah, Raleigh. As far as the um, Davidic, somebody brought up the question about the Davidic king. Mm -hmm. So in the millennium. It talks about David being the king. Yes. Is that actual David or a Davidic king? Yeah, there's, I'm not remembering exactly where it is, but it's translated that the king will be the Davidic king, but it just says David there in the prophet where it says it. So my personal opinion is that David will be the king of Israel and Jesus will be the king over him, over the whole earth, and king of Israel. But it doesn't really matter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We'll figure it out when we get there. It'll, it'll be obvious. But, yeah, it's, it's fun things to, to think about. Any other questions with that stuff? All right. That was your chance. Now we got to go full speed ahead. <laughs> so Ezra 4, 1, 6 through 22. So last week I started out our class talking about boys fighting over bouncy balls. So I'll just reiterate that. You know, if there was a group of boys here and I threw this among them, you know, the first one to grab it would be like, it's mine. And the other one would be like, well, I saw it first. And he'd say, well, I had it first. And there'd be this fight about who owns the bouncy ball. And that's just who we are at our core, is we grab onto stuff and say it's mine. Uh, so what happens is we've kind of done this to a lot of things. But the people, when they come to Jerusalem, uh, according to the end of chapter 2, they come with an open hand. So these are people who have been in captivity. They probably didn't own a lot. They were slaves in uh, Babylon and then in Persia. Under, under the Persian rule. And all of a sudden, they've been given all the, these riches, um, all the gold that belonged to Israel and sent back. And so now they're like, given all this money and unsupervised. <laughs> and so you would think the, the temptation for these people would say, well, this is mine. I'm not going to share it um, after they've experienced things like that. But instead, in chapter 2, um, verse 68, it says, Some of the heads of the fathers' houses, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, 
offered freely for the house of God to erect it in its place. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. So as they come back to Israel, the people come back all together, ready to give of their own riches to help accomplish their purpose of rebuilding the temple. And that is the right attitude to have, to be on board with what God is doing and to freely give of their resources that actually belong to God um, and to steward them for God's glory. So the people come into the land like this. What's going to happen is some opposition is going to come in chapter 4, and the people, according to Haggai, we know that they go like this, and they all kind of grab onto their own stuff, and they actually grab onto some of the stuff that was reserved to build the temple. And Haggai says, you guys are living in really nice houses. What happened to God's house? (laughs) And where's all the materials for his house? And I think he's referring to that they've... uh, not just holding on to their own stuff, they've actually reached out and the things that they purchased for the temple have also used that for their own houses. And so, kind of a principle we see here is that when these people who originally were open-handed and trusting the Lord and wanting to move forward with this, when some fear came, when some adversaries came, when there was pushback, that's when they said, ah, I need, I need this to be safe. I need to hold on to this to be able to make it through this hard time. So let's go ahead and look at the opposition that comes to them. And so that's our first thing here. Um, So this is all what chapter 4 is, is Ezra's summary of the adversaries of Israel opposing the work of the Lord. So starting in chapter 4, we're not going to read all three chapters, but we'll read portions. So chapter 4, verse 1. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do, and we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. So who are these people? These people are described in 2 Kings 17, 24 through 41. So that's in your next blank there. So they come and they offer to help. All right, they, they want to come and provide assistance, but we already have the clue in that they're not friendly. They're adversaries. They're working against God's plan for Israel. They don't like Israel. Um, so who are these people? Well, I don't think they're lying that they do worship their God. Um, but what we learn from 2 Kings 17 is that they worship lots of gods. And so they're actually condemned in mm-hmm. 2 Kings 17 for that. And so Zerubbabel is on to them. And so listen to what he does, him and Jeshua do in verse 3. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua, the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel, said to them, You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel. As King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. And so right away, uh, they see that coming and they just say no. (laughs) Um, And they're they're convinced that this is what God wants them to do and they don't need help from uh, 
the other nations that haven't been called by God to be Israel, to be God's people. So what's going to happen is three things that these people do to push back against what God is doing in Israel. Um, so I'll just put them up here so you guys can write them down and then we'll read about them. So the first thing they do is they discourage and trouble the people. And then they actually hire professional counselors to frustrate what they're trying to do. And then the third thing they do is they write a slanderous letter back to the Persian king saying that this is an evil nation that can't be trusted and you need to shut down what they're doing. <laughs> so, you know, these are the three things they do to help the Israelites. So it's a good thing they didn't let them into the camp and let them help them. Uh, so those... Uh, three things are outlined in the next couple of verses. So verse 4 is the first. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in the building. So you think about how they would have had to build things. We understand supply chain things today. It would have been similar back then, just a lot slower. Um, you know, if you think about the long distance, uh, you know, they exported their wood from, uh, I don't remember. What's no, What? Lebanon, yeah. And so it would have been easy for these people to disrupt that. So it would have stopped the supply of materials. So somehow they were messing with uh, the building. And then verse 5, And hired counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So I don't know if that means that the counselors were directly working against them, or if they were just advising these people on how to annoy them. But either way, they're frustrating them. And you know when you're, having, when you're working on a project, interruptions, frustrations uh, are difficult. They're hard to deal with, and especially when you're undertaking a job as big as building the temple of the Lord. Um, and then what you can do is verses 6 through 23 are an aside. So this is Ezra looking back, knowing the whole story, and uh, telling us about something that these people did years in the future. So this isn't uh, directly chronological. Ezra kind of jumps out of time here and talks about something that doesn't happen for a long time. So if you just want to bracket or put a note that verses 6 through 23 were done by these people, but in the future, not chronologically in the where we're at in the story. Does that kind of make sense? So we'll still look at it, but um, if you notice in verse 6, it says, in the reign of Ahasuerus. So this is during Esther's time. This is um, the king that Esther interacted with. <clears throat> and so this was later on, years later, and it wouldn't have been right now. Um, so actually the, the response to this letter is what brings Nehemiah to the land. So Nehemiah responds to this letter in Nehemiah chapter 1. So that's how these connect. Uh, that would be a helpful thing to know if you were trying to put it all together. So what, what is this letter? In verse 6, um, in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So these people are going to slander the Israelites and say, you can't trust them. In the past, they've been rebellious. They're going to be rebellious again. They're rebuilding. You need to stop them. So we're going to jump down to the contents of the letter. 
down in verse 12. So this is them making the king aware of these awful people. Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem and are building the rebellious and evil city and are finishing its walls and repairing the foundations. Let it be known to the king that if this city is built and the walls completed, they will not pay tax, tribute, or custom, and the king's treasury will be diminished. Now, because we received support from the palace, it was not proper for us to see the king's dishonored. Isn't this just like classic, like, oh, we're in this for you. You should come get them. Therefore, we have sent and informed the king. That search, uh, that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, and you will find in the book of the records and know that this city is a rebellious city, harmful to kings and provinces, and they have incited sedition within the city in former times, for which cause this city was destroyed. So they're not exactly wrong. From their perspective, uh, Israel would have been an enemy and would have caused them a lot of trouble. So <laughs> it's just funny hearing it from the enemies of Israel's side that they see Israel as evil. Um, and they're trying to get them destroyed. Yeah, Aaron. So verse 6, it's saying in the reign of uh, Hezurus, yeah. in the beginning of his reign, they wrote a letter or wrote an accusation. And then in verse 7, it says, in the days of Artaxerxes. Yes. So this, is there another time jump between verse 6 and verse 7? No. My understanding is that those are the same people. Uh, just different languages. Uh, so I think actually in Esther, it jumps back and forth between the two names as well, which is really confusing. But that's just, that happened a lot because there were so many different languages. The people had different names in different languages. And so I think, does that sound right to everybody? If I'm wrong, then we'll figure that out. <laughs> um, so yeah, they're just saying... You know, you need to come and stop these guys because they're, they're really bad. What cracks me up is at the end of verse 17, the, end, the New King James Version, they end the letter with peace and so forth. So I don't know what the other ones say, but that's just like a really funny way to end a letter like, uh, peace and so forth. You know, like, <laughs> I guess we need to close the letter somehow, so here we are. Um, so yeah, that's the main contents of the letter that's helpful for us. Um, but you could read through the whole thing some other time. So we're going to jump down to uh, the end. So verse 23 is when the king receives the letter. So it says, Now when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahum, Shimshai, Shimshai, the scribe, and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem against the Jews and by force of arms made them cease. So... This is, a, this is Nehemiah's time that we're reading about with that. So we're going to kind of ignore that for now. But these people were really against the Israelites rebuilding in Jerusalem. So in verse 24, we jump back to our current timeline. And it kind of summarizes that because of the opposition, the work on the temple ceases. So verse 24, Thus the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased, and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So our next blank is work on the temple ceased for 16 years. So it's not clear there, but with the reign of the kings and everything, we can work that out, that uh, there's a 16-year halt on the work of the temple. So... Um, the end of chapter 4 occurs in 536 B.C. 
and the beginning of chapter 5. Oh, that might be wrong. I might have drawn the arrow the wrong way, which is so pleasant. Uh, I don't remember the dates. We'll, we'd have to look that up, but there's a 16-year break here, and that's just crazy to me that... <laughs> just like working on a project like I've put a project off for a long time you know like you start it and there's like all that ambition at the beginning like let's get this done and then you work like all day on it and you're exhausted and then like two months later you're like I need to finish that at some point and that takes way more time so we've all been there but 16 years is a long time and I also think about it as a parent like sometimes when your kid does something bad uh, you give them a chance to tell you, to like come clean about it and, and bring it up to you themselves. And God just gives them a long time to you know, figure it out on their own. But they don't. So after 16 years, God sends Haggai and Zechariah. So this is where these prophets show up. And they prophesy for four years, four and a half years, to help Israel start back up with building the temple and then finish it. So from chapter, the beginning of chapter 5, it takes another four years to build the temple. So, <clears throat> we will look at that next. Um, everyone have those? Yeah, do you have something to say, According to Ryrie, yeah. the, the work was halted until 520. So okay. we're in an interval from 536. That, that does make sense. Perfect. I wrote it down yeah. right. So, thank you, Dale. The work ceased in 536 P B.C. and then resumed in 520 B.C. I feel like I get messed up, too, because it's, like, backwards yeah. in B.C., and my mind's like, that's 14 years, but, yeah. you know, it's, or four years, but. An amazing the thought way. is, if they had the 61,000 pieces of gold, Yeah. I just checked on that. And each piece represented a day's wages. And so if that's you divide incredible. that, that's 167 years worth of work wow. or salary. And somehow they managed to keep that intact for that period of time as well, hmm. which is rather amazing. 147 years compensation. That's a lot. If you divide 61,000 by 365. Yeah, that's crazy. That's a lot of money. Right. That's what they had back in chapter two, is right. that right? Yeah, right. Or what they gave? What they, what they gave was okay. sixty-one thousand. Yeah, that's awesome. So they, that means they retained it somehow sure. through that period of time. Maybe that's why they were enemies too. Well, when they went, uh, the people who didn't come with the Israelites who didn't come with were giving money to the people going back. So yeah. that that could have been some of it. That it was just a pooling of funds to help those going succeed. Yeah, succeed. but if they went and had that kind of value with them. Right. There would have been a lot of interest in um, getting access to that. Right. No, that's really good. Thanks, Dale. Yeah. Um, any thoughts on Chapter 4 before we Sorry. roar through Chapter 5? No, you're great, Dale. That's super helpful. Okay. Uh, there's lots of letters in these couple chapters, which is why it's kind of one story... Um, but uh, there's lots of correspondences. Okay, chapter 5. So that's why it'd be helpful to read Haggai and Zechariah along with this 
because it makes sense of what we read in those. If you read those without understanding the people seeking to be restored to the land, right. seeking a Davidic king, seeking a high priest, um, Zechariah especially won't make sense. Mm -hmm. And Haggai too. Haggai is all about the glory of the temple, that they need the temple, and God promises to come and dwell with them again if they uh, will build it and obey, <laughs> which they don't do. And then Zechariah is all about how they need a king priest, and it's promised that he will come one day. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's kind of fun too. But Okay, so chapter 5. Uh, then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edu, prophets, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem. That was a lot of profiting right there. So the prophets who were prophets who prophesied. Um, in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So here they come. Uh, we think about these people who for 16 years have kind of in fear because of this opposition held on to the things that they were called to give for the good of you know, the nation and for rebuilding. And they're being confronted with God's rebuke. God saying, repent. I'm going to be good to you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to show you my steadfast love. Uh, please return to me and finish the temple. And what's great is they respond well. And they, they respond to... Uh, the prophets in repentance and obedience. Uh, there'll be a couple things in these next two chapters that really point to God's sovereignty at work um, around them. So at the end of verse 1 it says, uh, in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So if you want to mark that somehow, that this is, it's pointing out God's sovereignty. I think there's two more that we'll see in the next coming verses. And it's just a reminder that even in their rebellion and disobedience to finish this project, <clears throat> God was still over them. He was their king. He hadn't left them. And he was committed to helping them finish the temple. So verse 2. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. So... Again, there's this really cool picture of the camaraderie that happens around God's word being prophesied. The people respond, and especially the leaders, the, the king and the priest, follow with the high priest, or sorry, follow with the prophets, and the, the king, the prophets, and the priests are kind of working together now. And it's this really cool picture of what Jesus will be, ultimately, that he's the prophet, priest, and king. And it takes all three of these guys to mess it up all the time. And Jesus did it perfectly. <laughs> and will, and does, and will. So. Um, so verse 3. So this is uh, probably, I don't remember all the details about him, but he's a, a Persian governor. So he would be under uh, the king. And he, he discovers that they're working on the temple, and he's wondering if they actually have permission to do this. So, sorry, I missed this one. So, letter A, the prophets bring the word of God. And now the work is questioned in these verses. So, there's a letter correspondence that happens here. So, we're going to see uh, the governor question the people, and then the people respond uh, with the names 
of those who are in charge, essentially. And then the governor is going to send a letter to Darius, and then Darius is going to respond, and we'll kind of see what happens. So, again, you know, they just got back to work. <laughs> you know, it's like, we're finally going again. We're making progress. We're working on the temple. And then here's this guy like, are you allowed to be doing this? And it's a guy who could shut him down, who could say you're done and uh, make him stop. So remember that, that note about God being over them. And then we'll see in a second that God's eyes are upon them. And it's just pointing out God's sovereignty and even how this big problem that comes up, you know, this railroads, the project, if it goes poorly, it actually works out better for them. Actually, the Darius makes the decision, I'll give it away, gives a decision to finance the project is how this ends up. And so they actually end up with the funding they needed to finish this when it seemed like it was going to be shut down. And so God just used what seemed like the biggest problem to provide the solution they needed. And so it's just fun to see God's sovereignty, his good plan at work behind the scenes, and that I know if I was one of those guys, I'd be like, what is God doing? Like, I thought he wanted us to build the temple. And he was providing funds for them uh, to finance the temple. So let's read down through it. Verse 3. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar Bosnai and their companions came to them and spoke thus to them. Who has commanded you to build this temple and finish this wall? Then accordingly, who, t or sorry, that's the end of them talking. Then, accordingly, we told them the names of the men who were constructing this temple. But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, so they could not make them cease till, the report, till a report could go to Darius. So that's just saying that um, they're kind of giving, giving an account of who is leading this, these projects, the leaders. And so God helped them to be able to get that figured out quickly is kind of the idea there. And it's just the, the God's eye was upon them um, to help them keep going. So they didn't cease to do that until they got it done. Uh, then a written answer was returned answering this matter. So this is uh, Tetanai's letter to Darius. So we're going to skip down to verse 8. This is the contents of the letter. So this is Tatanai writing. He says, Let it be known to the king that we went into the province of Judea to the temple of the great God, which is being built with heavy stones, and timber is being laid in the walls, and this work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke thus to them, Who commanded you to build this temple and finish these walls? We also asked them their names to inform you that we might write the names of the men who were chief among them. And so they're writing to Darius and saying, um, you know, we found this. Here's the leaders' names. And then we're going to jump down to verse 17. Uh, the other verses there are what, it's basically Israel explaining the permission they had from Cyrus. And so we're going to jump over that because we know all that. So down in verse 17 uh, is Tetanai's, uh, he wants to know what he should do. So now, therefore, it seems good to the king. If it seems good to the king, let a search be made in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon, whether it is so that a decree must, was issued by King Cyrus to build this house of God at Jerusalem and let the king send us pleasure concerning this matter. So these guys aren't really against 
the Israelites, they would just want to make sure they have the right to be doing this. So here's kind of the summary. So Tatanai, the governor, questions the remnant's right to rebuild. So he says, do you guys have permission to do this? And they say, yes. And so he writes to Darius, the king of Persia, and asks Darius to search the archives uh, to see if Cyrus had given them permission. So that would solve the problem. You know, is their story true? Does it check out? Um, and so here in chapter 6, oh, sorry, I jumped ahead. So we're going to read about King Darius searching the archives, and then he does find it, and I told you that he supports their finding, or uh, <clears throat> what the Israelites said. So in chapter 6, verse 1, Then King Darius issued a decree, and a search was made in the archives where the treasures um, were stored in Babylon. Where the treasures, sorry. And at Akmetha, in the palace that is in the province of Media, a, a scroll was found, and in it, a record was written thus. And so we're not going to read all that because we read that earlier. But it's basically Cyrus saying, yeah, go for it, guys, and here's all your temple stuff back. So it checks out. Um, and then down in verse 6 is Darius's instructions to Tatanai of what to do now. So this is new information for us in verse 6. Now, therefore, Tatanai, governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar Bosnai, and your companions, the Persians who are beyond the river, keep yourselves far from there. So leave them alone. Let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God on its site. Moreover, so this is, he tells them to back off, and now here's a new decree from the king of Persia concerning the people. Moreover, I issue a decree as to what you shall do for the elders of these Jews, for the building of this house of God. Let the cost be paid at the king's expense from, the, from taxes on the region beyond the river. This is to be given immediately to these men so that they are not hindered. And whatever they need, young bulls, rams, and lambs for burnt offerings of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, and oil according to the request of the priests who are in Jerusalem, let it be given them day by day without fail that they may offer sacrifices of sweet aroma to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. So Tadnai, he's losing his tax money now. He, he brought up these people and said, hey, what should we do with them? Are they allowed to do this? And Darius is like, you should pay all of their expenses to rebuild the temple, provide all the animals they need for sacrifices and the other things they need out of the money you receive in taxes. <laughs> and so it's just this awesome display of God's sovereignty that they would have been panicked that we're going to get shut down if they can't find in the archives that we have permission to do this. And all along, God was providing for them. And later we'll see at the end of chapter 6, it says that God moved the heart of the king to strengthen the hands of the Israelites. And so God was doing all of this to uh, show that he's sovereign, to provide for them. Um, and so he moves the heart of the king, not just to say, yep, they have permission, let them go, but then to provide all they need. And it says to strengthen the hands of those working on the temple to finish it. And so God provided the funds they needed and all the things that they would need for the temple. Um, but he doesn't stop there. In verse 11, he kind of 
uh, pronounces a curse on anyone who gets in the way. Also, I issue a decree that whoever alters this edict, which could include disobeys it, um, we're not sure about that, but at least don't change it. Let a timber be pulled from his house and erected and let him be hanged on it and let his house be made a refuse heap because of this. And may the God who causes his name to dwell there destroy any king or people who put their hand to alter it or to destroy this house of God which is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, issue a decree. Let it be done diligently. So it's just like this, you know, what got into the head of Darius? Well, God changed his heart and said, support the people. And anyone who gets in their way after this, uh, we're going to pull a post out of their house and kill them and hang them on it. And so don't get into his way. And there's kind of a poetic irony there that if you get in the way of the building of God's house, you'll be killed on your own house. It's kind of the idea. Um, so Darius was trying to be funny. But yeah, so that is, that was fast. <laughs> Does anybody have any questions about that part that we went through? I think I put all the points up for that part. Yeah, Linda. I'm just trying to get timing a little bit. Yeah. A little clearer in my head. So our Xerxes was part of hindering. So or Ahasuerus was mm -hmm. part of hindering. Esther wasn't in the picture yet. Is that correct? So it would have been Vashti. So that creative. that actually happens way later on. It happens okay. in about uh, it happens near the beginning of Nehemiah's time. Yeah. So that's my understanding is so Nehemiah Esther would Esther have been there, probably, if she was still alive. Point? When, are you talking Nehemiah? about that letter? Yeah, the letter. I'm trying to mm -hmm. figure out, because she really stuck her neck out, say the least, literally, to right. uh, save the Jewish people. Where, where does that fit in relation to this letter? Mm -hmm. And what, what he shut down? Yeah, I'm not positive. I read... Because she could have stood up, I mean... It's interesting. Right. She picked her battles. Um. Mm hmm. Yeah, so if you go to Nehemiah 2, um, 2 1, it talks about King Artaxerxes, is still the king. So it's possible that Esther knew of Nehemiah if he was the king's cupbearer. Right. They probably knew each other. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know if she just didn't know about it. Because even the the part we'll read in Esther doesn't she finds about about it through Mordecai, right? Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Mordecai comes right. and tells and her, so Mordecai she's probably is, ignorant of politics. Right. At the end of Esther, Mordecai is the second in command. So that would have been hard on him if he had right shutting that down, wouldn't it? Yeah. No, that would have been interesting. I don't know how long all of them lived, and so together. right. But no, that would have been. Uh, congruent-ish. No, it should have been. Because Esther occurs after this chapter, um, after chapter 7, sorry, after chapter 6 is when um, Esther occurs in that 58-year gap between Ezra 7 and 6. So, that's, yeah, I'm... People have probably wondered that before. I wonder if there's, if someone's put it together and Somebody figured it out. I don't know. Somebody has. Right. Yeah, good question. Any other 
additions or thoughts for <coughs> chapter six and five and four? Wow, we've cruised. So where was Daniel then? With King, he was part of King Darius's uh, reign as well, wasn't he? Um, I know he was with Cyrus. Um, did he last to Darius? We all got to pull out our maps or our timelines here. So Daniel. Yeah, chapter Daniel chapter six. Uh, mm-hmm. He's he's serving. That's. Uh, oh, there it in fact, is. it was Darius who put him in the lion's den. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he would have been uh, a part of the government. And right, praying back so, and back yeah, home, yeah, right? still praying for the, the group who went back. And we had talked about that before, how it's interesting that he didn't go. He stayed. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe that was part of God's plan as God used Daniel in, in Persia to keep things moving in Jerusalem because the kings trusted him. And, and know the history when it was needed. Right. That's really good. All right, we'll finish chapter 6 here. So in verse 13. uh, Chapter 6, verse 13. um, We'll see that God turns the heart of the king to strengthen the remnant's hands. So that's the kind of the summary that's given in verse 22 um, of everything we've read about uh, over the past chapter. But let's go ahead and read down, starting in verse 13. Then Tatanai, governor of the region beyond the river, Shathar Bosnai, and their companions diligently did according to what, the king, to what King Darius had sent. So they, they obey that they need to finance the temple. So the elders of the Jews built, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai and the prophet, sorry, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, the son of Edu, and they built and finished it according to the commandment of God, of the God of Israel, and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. It's interesting he draws in Artaxerxes there, because he's not, uh, not there quite yet. Um, now the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. So that's in 516 B.C., if you're keeping track. Uh, then the children of Israel, the priests, and isn't that funny that they, like, we've been building to this moment of building the temple, and then it's just like, oh, and they finished it. <laughs> but they, they do celebrate, but it just seems kind of funny that Ezra doesn't get into it. Uh, then the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the descendants of the captivity celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. Um, and so that's actually where, or what Hanukkah is today, that's my understanding, is this celebration here in Ezra of the dedication of the temple. The finishing of the temple is what they celebrate at Hanukkah. So Hanukkah is just the Hebrew word for dedication. Um, so they celebrate this. Um, they offered sacrifices at the dedication of this house of God, 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and these are all financed by the Persian government. <laughs> and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. 
They assigned the priests to their divisions and the Levites to their divisions over the service of God in Jerusalem as it is written in the book of Moses. And so here they are following, um, following the law again. That's part of the criteria of what they need to be a nation is to obey the law. Just like to be a free American, we have to obey our laws. Otherwise, you get put in prison. Uh, they need to follow uh, the Mosaic Covenant to continue on as the nation. <clears throat> so, I think that's our first blank here. So, the work of the temple is completed, and then the temple is dedicated to God. And then lastly, we'll see that the remnant seeks the Lord God of Israel. And so this is a fitting end to their journey and project is to, to come to the Lord, to ask him to uh, watch over them and help them. And if you think about the bouncy ball thing again, they're, they're still doing a good job holding their hand open and saying, Lord, we want to serve you. We want to do what you want us to do. Uh, so in these verses, starting in 19, and the descendants of the captivity kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves. All of them were ritually clean. And they slaughtered the Passover lambs for all the descendants of the captivity, for their brethren, the priests, and for themselves. Then the children of Israel who had returned from captivity ate together with all who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations of the land in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. And so again, we see God's sovereignty working out and him turning the heart of the king uh, to help them in completing what he promised to do through them. So after chapter 6 here, there's a 58-year gap. Um, so we pick back up in Ezra 7 with the person of Ezra, in 458 B.C. So between chapter 6 and chapter 7 is where Esther and Malachi fit in chronologically. So we can uh, go to Esther next week. Does anyone have any questions on Ezra so far? I'm going to kind of leave it for a little bit. which may be a good idea. I don't know, but we're going to try it. <laughs> um, this won't help a lot for the next few weeks, but in the outline in the handout, I've tried to keep the numbering um, consistent with where we're at in the book so that you have a full book outline by the end. So you notice that we covered points four, five, and six. So the first week we covered points one and two of the book. Last week we covered point three, and today we covered four, five, and six. Great. So if that's helpful to you, I didn't forget to restart the numbering in Word. Uh, so what? That's the last thing. Uh, what can we learn from uh, these people here? So we can learn to have an open hand to God even when facing hardship. So I think that's kind of the, the one foot fault that we find um, with these people is when opposition came, they forgot that God was over them. They forgot that his, his eye was upon them. Uh, they forgot that he could turn the heart of kings. 
and they, they stopped building the temple. And according to Haggai, they, they grabbed things for themselves to help themselves, to build houses for themselves, to make themselves comfortable, and uh, stopped following the Lord. And so, uh, yeah, I think our tendency as well is it's really easy to give generously when we have a lot. It's really gen- easy. It's easier to give when things are going well. But when a crisis hits our life, it's easy to say, I need to keep these things to be safe, to be a network, a wall of safety, um, so if something else comes up, I won't be left with nothing. And I feel that too. That is, I think that's just the way we tend to operate. And one of the points we'll look at here is that, uh, it's something Pastor Lance said once, that insecurity or feeling unsafe is an illusion for the child of God. That a child of God may feel unsafe, but they're never unsafe. God never leaves one of his children unsafe. He never puts them through anything unplanned. Um, He never leaves them with nothing um, against his plan. And so even when hard things come, we can keep our hands open to the Lord with his stuff and uh, he'll do what he wants, and we can trust him through that. And either way, us hoarding stuff to ourselves in fear uh, won't save us. That's just a false sense of security. The real sense of security is in trusting God and his plan and his purposes in our lives. Um, It's far better to humble ourselves and repent than continue on in the wrong direction. So this is the good thing they did that we should uh, imitate is that when they're confronted with what they're doing wrong with the word of the Lord, the prophets, they, they do the right thing. They say, you're right, we need to build the temple. We've stopped doing that. And so they turn away from going the way that they were going and go back to following the Lord and his plan. And so sometimes God will let us wander off for 16 years doing our own thing and he's very patient and good to us and, and kind to, to not discipline us sometimes. But, but sometimes he disciplines us in his kindness to bring us back to him and he uses his word to uh, direct us in those things. God's eye watches over us. So even when we face fearful circumstances, there's nothing to fear. So this is what I was referring to earlier, that fear for the child of God is an illusion. You can never be unsafe when God is your heavenly father because he turns the hearts of kings. He's over us. He has his eye on us. And so we're always safe under God's watchful eye. And it's, you know, Jesus talks about things like this in the New Testament that uh, don't fear those who can hurt the body, right? God is the one who has control of all things. Don't fear people. Don't fear circumstances. Fear the Lord and and follow him. Not that we're afraid of him, but that he's bigger than whatever comes through the door next. And we can trust him no matter what happens. Uh, God rules sovereignly. He turns the hearts of kings. He strengthens the hands of his people for the completion of his purposes. So we're not Israel, but there's similar promises to the church in like the book of Ephesians that God has prepared good works ahead of us for us to walk in. God has plans for us, and uh, he 
uh, equips us and strengthens us for whatever he calls us to. We must continue to obey God's word when facing resistance. Opposition is an opportunity for us to glimpse God's wise and powerful plan to provide for his purposes. So again, these, uh, you know, the Israelites, when Tetanai or whatever his name was, comes and questions them, uh, my response would be, oh no, we just started again and they're going to shut us down. But through God using him, they were able to get the financing that they needed to finish the temple and uh, to have everything they needed and the protection they needed against others stopping them. And so God used what seemed like a setback opposition to provide, to give them what they needed and to help them depend on him. And he followed through with doing what he promised to do in his purposes. Um, ultimately, God is the only one who can do the good work. Uh, so we didn't get into the message of Zechariah as much tonight, but um, the promise is of a coming priest king who accomplished what Israel failed to do. So we must trust him. So all of this is great. They're trying to follow the Lord, but they ultimately can't do it because they don't have new hearts. Um, they don't have a perfect king. They don't have a perfect high priest. And so again, as we get to the end of this, we'll see that they fall short. And so the prophets aren't despairing in that. They're actually saying, trust the Lord because he's providing the perfect one to lead us. And he's going to give us new hearts. He's going to give us his spirit. And then we can perfectly follow him. And so it'd be fun to read Zechariah. You've got to you know, put your nose to the grindstone because it's... Uh, hard. <laughs> if I'm being honest, it's, it's a hard one to understand. But at the, the last few chapters of Zechariah, God promises that he's going to send uh, the perfect priest king, the branch, uh, to save his people, the good shepherd. And that's where you get into uh, the, prophe the prophecy of the king riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Uh, that's in Zechariah and things like that. So, yeah. The, the point of that part is we don't trust in ourselves. We trust in God because he does the good work always, right? Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. So he went away. He gave us his spirit. And so now God working through us and his church who are indwelt by his spirit are able to actually accomplish eternal purposes of God because God is working through us because we have his spirit. Um, and so we're able to, to follow him and uh, accomplish things that he set out for us to do. Uh, I hope that's helpful. Does anyone have any questions or thoughts with that? Yeah, Dale. A thought that occurs to me is that we often get discouraged or concerned mm -hmm. because we're in the midst of something and don't realize we're not at the end of the story. Sure. And God's always concerned with the end of the story. Mm-hmm. It's even more so than the process. And it just occurred to me, I remember reading somewhere, I don't remember, some time ago, mm -hmm. about 80 to 90% of what we worry about never actually happens anyway. Right. So we're prone to um, get discouraged even when it's not likely that what we're discouraged about will happen. Right. And that's just, that's just data mm -hmm. from 
people have tried to measure that kind of stuff, but it doesn't even take into account the reality that God never fails, never is surprised, always knows, and is sovereign. Dale, you just summarized perfectly every prophet. That, that is exactly what the prophets are. Is it saying, you know, it looks really bad right now, yeah. but, but here's the end of the story, yeah. and God's going to use you and, and eventually provide the perfect thing. Yep. And so that's awesome. We'll have to call you uh, Adam Minor Prophet or something. <laughs> yeah, Linda. I'm just thinking of the people who had influence over these kings. I mean, yeah. they were earthly people. So Esther and Daniel in particular, God mm -hmm. placed very specifically in their roles, and they probably had a role in this part of the story. Right. So yeah, I wish that in Ezra, you know, they would have pointed them out. Um, but that would be fun to work out the timeline a little bit more to see yeah. the, yeah. you know, how they overlap. Here, I can pull up that big chart and we can kind of... <clears throat> So, so 478 is when Esther comes, and this is when chapter 7 of Ezra starts. There's time in there. So, yeah, I just don't know if... What's the Darius 2, that 410 over there on the right? You've got two Dariuses on here, right? Yeah. Is that confusing or what? I right. think two Artaxerxes up there. Well, that, that's what they would do is they would, it probably wasn't their birth name even, oh, but their like king name. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. So, I feel like I could stare at this all day and still not grasp everything. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really fascinating chart. But, yeah, it's, it, that's a good question. I wonder if there's books written on that to put that together, or maybe like a chronological Bible would. Sure there is you know, throw in mm -hmm. chapters of different books to sort it all yeah. out, but yeah. that's good. So the last two pages of your notes are part one of a study that you're welcome to do of Zechariah. I'll be honest, my questions probably aren't super helpful because <clears throat> I'm still processing it, but it would help you work through it in a couple days uh, is what would be really helpful. But. Um, yeah, the background of Zechariah there, chapters 1 through 8 focus on leadership, um, the need for leadership in restoring the kingdom. So it addresses Jeshua and Zerubbabel specifically. And then chapters 9 through 14 are more of an anticipation of the perfect priest king, Jesus, who will be pierced and will be the perfect king who is enthroned forever. So that's a simple outline of it. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.